now a younger generation, I think people uh, under 25 that applied for the military were denied because they're overweight. The obesity thing, how does that happen? It came in through the mouth. There's a lot of resistance to labeling. So as much as we look at the ingredients, there's a level below which, granted it's like, well, it's so low, it's not gonna be a problem, that we don't have to know about. Plastics, plastics, the guy was right. It is killing us. We were the spirit of America. We're gonna make it all work, you know, for ourselves. We were mega in debt. 2008 came along. Not in generations has Wall Street absorbed the number of body blows it took today. The American financial system is rocked to its foundation as top Wall Street institutions topple under a mountain of debt. Each day you wake up to a progressively more stressful situation. When it finally hit me, it was like my gut stopped. And I get my colonoscopy and they say, you know, you not only have ulcerated colitis, you have Crohn's disease, and it's the worst we've ever seen. I have time, roughly about 90 days, to figure this out, to get out of this box, because I'm not going with more drugs. I am not gonna get sucked down into the death funnel. And that's what you start to see, it's like, my hands are sliding down the sides, and I realize, throw away what you thought you knew, start again with real basic stuff. Now on to the ketogenic diet, and why the ketogenic diet? Well, we were hunter-gatherers up until at least 10,000 years ago. That's 190,000 years, which means primarily we ate animals. But the dirty little secret about the ketogenic diet, it works for less than 50% of the people. How is uric acid associated with early death? That's a big question. Um... This interview with Dr. Goldcamp was the deepest conversation I've had about longevity on this channel. I had to watch this interview twice to understand the big picture of why we're getting heart disease, cancer, and dying early. And I'm making three changes to my life, and I'm sure that you'll do the same. Let's get into the episode. Dr. Goldcamp, now I have watched so many of your videos right here on this YouTube channel. I pretty much watch every single one of them. And it seems like the biggest cause of early death is dementia heart disease, diabetes, and cancer. And the interesting thing is, probably about 10 years ago, we've probably had about 100 times improvement in technology, but we haven't had the same improvement in our health. It seems that we're getting sicker. Can you explain why that is? If I'm getting the low-hanging fruit, simple answer, it's clearly our diet. And it's not so much that we're not getting the nutrition, it's because we have all these other things that are put in the food that don't have to be put in the label. So in the United States, we have an ongoing argument about labeling, and there's a lot of resistance to labeling. So as much as we look in the ingredients, there's a level below which, granted it's like, well, it's so low, it's not gonna be a problem, that we don't have to know about. So it's in the food, not in terms of hyponutrition, it doesn't have the nutrition that meat or plants had. Plant, and that's a whole, topical in the United States, but maybe worldwide. Um, so there's that. So that would be the, the, you know, that's the obvious answer. Then to that, you add environmental toxicities, whether it's the phthalates or the heavy metals or the, you know, the, the, uh, bisphenol phosphates or plastics and so on. You, we've never been here before for anybody who watched the graduate, a movie in my generation, you know, the line was, you know, plastics, plastics, the guy was right. It is killing us. And so, uh, and there's been a number of studies on that. So now 
the problem is uh, the economy is run by marketing and they need to sell stuff and they sell stuff. So that means the onus is on personal discretion. You now know that plastic is bad. What are you going to do about it? You now know that heavy metals are bad. Well, that's a little more sinister. They don't pop up. But there's some things you can act on, obviously. Other things are um, so uh, are less so. But when it comes to the food, if you're reaching for a donut and you haven't questioned that, you know, whole grain or not, if they even make whole grain donuts, I don't know. That's not on my diet list. Um, then you have to think about that. So the quality of the food clearly is number one. The stuff they put in it is number two. Number three is environmental toxins. Absolutely. And you mentioned the big word diet. We're going to talk more about what is the diet that's going to increase our lifespan? But I know for you personally, Dr. Goldcamp, you went through such a traumatic experience in just six months. And this was about 10 years ago. Can you walk us through what happened that you nearly died from what happened to you? Yeah, I would say, uh, so one word is stress. So where did that stress came from? We were in practice for, oh, um, a good 10 years, worked for another group. We started our own practice, bought a building. Oh, they rented, did real well, bought a big building. We were mega in debt. And the, and the model there was you now own the build, the real estate. You now have other rooms to hire out to other therapists, a very you know, basement and all this other stuff. And going forward, when you choose to retire, there you go. You sell it all and that's your retirement. 2008 came along and that was a big downturn. You know, people weren't even paying their copays, which is a thing in this, you know, it's like not even paying your copay. Um, and naturopaths in the state of Connecticut, now I'm talking, don't really get a lot of uh, remuneration. They don't get a lot of, you know, the insurance doesn't cover much. It's unlike, but they don't know that. So we had a full practice. Then 2008 came along and that was concurrent with, uh, and it's always a delayed effect. Then we finally actually went through bankruptcy in 2012, which is whenever everything starts to fall apart. I had a brother die of multiple myeloma in 2012. That was a, took a decade to get there. My mother died just before that. So a lot of things tended to come right down at the same place. So that was the stress. So what does stress mean? Uh, stress means you're producing a lot of cortisol. You are um, not allowing your body to repair. And a chronic high stress, not acute, you know, it's not like you almost got hit by a bus and you step back. That's acute. Chronic is each day you wake up to a progressively more stressful situation. You, you just haven't learned to shake it off. You can't shake it off because the reality is right in front of you. And there's all these other triggers. You know, it could have been for others. It's a bad relationship. It's abuse. It's a uh, bad job, so on and so forth. So eventually it all hit the fan um, concurrent. So my wife was doing two jobs. She had a whole full-time job, but she was also on my front desk. Uh, she was a database analyst for a whole other company, and she was checking people in and out. And you know, we were gonna—we were the spirit of America. We're gonna make it all work, you know, for ourselves. Had the education, and lucky enough to buy these the buildings and so on and so forth. And so, how stress affected her? You know, weekends we were painting and knocking down walls, and it was all like, hey, um, can do the American dream. That so she developed uh, an angioma, which is basically a, it's a space occupying lesion. So depending where that is, it's going to hurt the nearby structure. So she had it right up next to her, pituitary between her two, they call it optic chiasm. So she ended up fast forward for her. She did actually have a thirteen hour brain surgery. Um, she did lose the vision in one eye, so she's monocular now. And um, me went from. When it finally hit me, it was like my gut stopped. 
there was no um, having a bowel movement. It's like, well, how long can that stop for? You know, obviously cuts the appetite. And so uh, now I go by to a nearby MD. I said, I really like to get scoped by uh, a colonoscopy. And there was a long line for that. So anyways, I got in there, da-da-da-da-da-da, see the, see the guy, and I get my colonoscopy, and they say, you know, you not only have ulcerated colitis, you have Crohn's disease, and it's the worst we've ever seen here. And how we do that is now we're putting you on steroids. And at that point, here's a big miss of conventional medicine. I mean, he had a racket. He was making lots of money. He talked about it. He owned, you know, it was a big building. He did really well, and he got the racket down and wheel you in, so on and so forth. Um, but wait a minute, this guy got me, now. this guy got to his state by stress and you're giving a steroid, which is a stress hormone. So wouldn't that compound the situation that you're trying to resolve? So obviously that didn't work. And unfortunately that drove me into an anemia. You know, in other words, it did compound it. It opened up my gut even more. So now I'm leaking blood. You know, you get that through a, well, you can see it in the stool, but through a hemocult. So now I'm leaking blood. And my anemia goes down to an, 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 how you measure anemia. The volume of your blood is, call it 45. That's a percent, right? That's just a number. It's roughly the equivalent of nine cups of blood, nine cups. So as you lose your cups of blood, I was down to two cups of blood. That is so little blood that uh, it's almost inoperable. That is so little blood that no longer could I go upstairs that we had to store house, I would have to lie down flat on the living room and just to sort of breathe. I was now down on a per breath basis, supposedly under doctor's guidance. And um, if I dare take a hot bath, um, the heat, it would take me hours to resolve from heat for the, you know, because what happens when your blood reduces in volume, your heart has to speed up. It's, it's like buses. You know, if you have fewer buses, but you have equally number of kids to pick up for school, you got to whip these buses around faster, right? So the two buses got to work a lot faster. So your heart is still like, you now have a resting heartbeat, what they call tachycardia. You're, you know, it's just not getting better. So um, found another doctor, got four transfusions, um, still got other meds. They're putting me on uh, other meds that were, yeah, anyway, bad. So I'm thinking, I got to get out of this. I, so I got my transfusions, you know, I, I got a breath, you know, my blood pressure went down. I wasn't quite up to 45. I was like in the high thirties, but it was a big, so I go, I have time roughly about 90 days to figure this out, to get out of this box because I'm not going with more drugs. You know, you had to give yourself needles and you had to sign a waiver. So this, you know, possibly carcinogenic, of course, all these things. Um, so with that, the, the, my first step was what they call, um, well, then it was called fecal microbiota transplant. Now it's just called FT, fecal transplants. And uh, an article in the New York Times caught me. It was like saying, hey, it was kind of a, a joke article. Hey, this weird lady's doing this thing. And said, so I go, I'm going to find out about this. And it goes back, the history of it, like everything else. You start your research on that. And then you find out who your donors are, or where do you go. So, but I went to two conferences. I went to University of Chicago International. Suddenly I'm now, and of course I had emailed these people ahead of time. And the center, as you know, is Australia for the um, Dr. Thomas, um, what was his last name? Um, 
Labrador is it's it's pronounced a different way, but he's in Sydney and he has by far the most anyway, so I'd emailed him and got to meet him in University of Chicago and we talked at length and gave a good talk, but we yeah, talking and uh it was he, he's profound, absolutely profound. And because of the scope of practice and however they can do it in Sydney, I don't think about the insurance or anything else, he had masses of people that he and now he has a big institute. Um, and he's well deserved. So I started there, started talking to others. But in the United States, they, you know, you'd get the doctor from University of Pennsylvania, the doctor from uh, Stanford, and saying, This is bad. You just can't be going out and doing FMT on your own. We're, we're working on it. We're trying to make a, a bank, you know, a, a stool bank so you can use it from us. So you could, set, you could see the agenda there. And then on the day of that conference, there was an article, article that came out in the New England Journal of Medicine about how somebody tried it themselves and had a terrible outcome. And you could just sort of, but yet you go talk to the doctors in Canada when you broke for lunch or whatever else, you know, uh, or from, especially Belgium was runner up to Australia, but a far second and extraordinary papers. You know, they were using it in Panama. They were using it for treating autism. They were using it for uh, diabetes in Belgium. This is now, yeah, yeah, 13. So it's about, yeah, it's 10 years ago. Um, and it was like, oh my gosh, you know, and so, um, so I go, all right, so what are we going to do it? So I used my wife and I set it up for it's three months and this is what we're going to do. We had to get our process down and so on and so forth. Um, she had never been on antibiotics since, I don't know, 15. So she was clean in that regard. Uh, she was a minimalist in terms of, I don't think she ever took any medications at all, but, um, even in supplementation. So that's what we did. And that was kind of like a, how are you going to make that work? So anyways, that goes and that puts you on a, you know, and now I felt, all right, I'm not going to fall apart. Um, when my blood that I was given is going to be filtered out of the body, you know, all blood lasts for 120 days, roughly 90. Um, I'm now to the point that I'm holding my blood. I'm not leaking as much as I was before. Right. So now onto the ketogenic diet and why the ketogenic diet, it's, in a word, um, the three ketones, ketone bodies, but primarily uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate, is a great gut anti-inflammatory. And it's also a great stimulant for the mind, and it goes a lot of things in terms of why, you know, uh, a keto or how we describe it now, but having a moderate ketosis, which is eating fewer carbs, of course, um, really helps with ketones in the brain. And uh, Dr. Mary Newport saw her present a number of times. She worked with her husband who had Alzheimer's and that was a very profound presentation. Um, and then Stephen Kinane beyond that. Um, and they sort of worked together, I think. Uh, but just now I realized I hadn't heard of any of these things. So I was, I was way off and I realized I, I tried not to be cynical. It's too easy to be cynical in life, but it's like, and I think maybe every doctor asks this, maybe not. It's like, so why weren't these topics explored? Why wasn't the ketogenic diet explored in naturopathic medical school at Bastyr? I think they had their agenda. I think every medical school has their agenda. Um, and there's still this sort of silent war going on. And, you know, it's kind of expressed in the media now who gets censored, who doesn't get censored. So I let that go. And so the ketogenic diet really has been refined, I think, in the last 10 or 15 years. You know, yeah, it was pediatric epilepsy. It was, you know, drop the carbs fat burn, get the ketones, look what happens. Um, and that was the genesis of the Charlie Foundation. And thank God, um, his father is the director of all those various movies, said, 
we're going to focus on this. And he opened up, you know, he cracked it open uh, in the mid 90s to bring back the diet. And so now it's gone beyond that with Volokh and Finney and so on and uh, Verta Health. And that's good. I don't think that's the end of the story, though. I, I think that that was that was showing a truth when you have such a big change that arguably is over 100 years old now when um, Russell Wilder came up with the ketogenic diet at the Mayo Clinic. Um, now we have a lot more ways of looking at not only our blood, we have the, you know, CGM continual glucose monitor, which anybody and everybody can get. And there's not a lot of different companies that do that. That is very, very valuable. And so, yeah, you have your ketometer and, you know, you can measure your ketones. I think that's actually less important. I think you've got to measure your glucose first is, you know, that's the thing that drives through. But anyway, so, um, it was the, so much the fear of death. It was kind of a determination. Um, and it was sort of an echo of my brother's death and so on. He died of multiple myeloma and he was the head of criminal justice for Temple University. And um, uh, he was one of the brightest people I ever knew and kind of a, a super athlete as well. But anyway, that it's just like, I am not going to get sucked down into the death funnel. And that's what you start to see. It's like my hands are sliding down the sides and I realize throw away what you thought you knew start again with real basic stuff. And we did. And um, didn't get into labs for, you know, back in, into now. I mean, this is my thing. Um, I would say for a good five or five years or so, you know, it was the FMT, it was ketogenic diet. It was started podcast interviewing, you know, as much as I was interviewing, I was after me. You know, I was like, I want to get what they know and strip it away from the marketing part. And uh, so I got a good foundation with understanding and saying it's profound. And, you know, it led into PSMF, protein sparing modified fast. Why is that relevant? Um, you know, and certainly led way into looking at evolution, you know, and going back and let's make sense of this. Everything has to have an origin, you know. And so the trite jingoisms or the marketing sayings of, oh, just do this, and we'll be better. That's seldom true. I mean, it's got an optimistic sort of ring to it, but there's work we each need to do. One is to assess. You call it, so now I'm at a you know, hyper assessment. I don't think I'm that hyper, actually. I'm a basic uh, assessor. You're pretty detailed. <laughs> detailed, right. I mean, we, the reason I, I hesitated there is because when you go see other naturopathic doctors, they have all these specialized panels to go off. And it's like, we're going to chase you know, what kind of plastic you may or may not have been exposed to before we look at the stuff in front. I'm not saying that's irrelevant. I'm thinking that that's way, it's, that's, that's a tweaking, you know, that, that's somebody trying to specialize. Anyway, so now I look at, we got to know our labs and that's what the doctors did in the fifties and sixties. They had their little tablets, you know, and they did longhand spreadsheets and everything. Mrs. Brown had these, you know, da, 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 da. And so they felt responsible for their population and saying, well, in my population, the male or female doctor would say, in my population, this is what we're seeing. But no, you go to a conference, you get people talking about other research, which is not theirs. So their cleverness is they did the work to go through, well, now it's the internet, but let's say before that, they did the work, praiseworthy, to put these studies together, but they're a doctor that's seeing patients and you want to go, okay, what's your data? Are you seeing this? And they'll go, yeah. No, what do you mean, yeah? You know, I mean, show us, you know, but it never happens. So it's more or less a conference is a Reader's Digest version of other people's work 
that was probably presented with a particular agenda. So it filters through. And so now I go, all right, I can be agenda free. And this is what the doctors were in the 50s. They were agenda free in the 60s, maybe even the 70s. And that's why there was kind of a clean conversation. That's why they earned the respect of their patients. Now it's everybody is suspicious of their doctor. He said, I should do what? Why? You know, and and it's 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 hard to engage, you know, so that's it's hard to engage. It's hard to know. I hear this a lot on the YouTube comments. I hear this a lot when I speak to people in the carnivore community, which I have. They don't know what to do or where to start because we're hearing so many different things of different ways that we want to cure disease, whether it be heart disease, cancer, or dementia, or diabetes, insulin resistance, obesity, metabolic syndrome. There's all these things that we want to cure. And the thing is, how do we start? So I think that you are so perfect, Dr. Goldcamp, to un actually understand this. Getting to the labs or the root cause, what I wanted to do is to do a bit of a funnel approach, which is let's start at the top because you clearly mentioned diet and ketogenic diet. And because you had your inflammatory conditions on the verge of death, you reversed that with a fecal transplant or fecal transplants and a ketogenic diet. Let's first start there and talk about some other things to increase lifespan, to reduce the risk of getting chronic disease ketogenic diet or diet in general, what are your thoughts on the ketogenic diet to increase lifespan and to avoid these chronic diseases that are just ever increasing? I think that on that level of, can we do one size fits all as a good generalization if we all made this migration to doing this thing? So let's say, so the classic ketogenic diet came out is less than 20 carbs. So you actually grams of carbs per day. And now we have things like chronometers, so people can find out what their carbs are per day. So the first thing, easy thing, is go to chronometer. It's free. The yes will have some ads in there. Pay five dollars, get rid of the ads. Or but and I don't really care about chronometer, but it's a thing that I use. Find your tracking, and now you have a piece of information. How many carbs per day am I actually having? Whether it's the donut or whether it comes in through the green leafy vegetables. So there's different kinds. There's good and bad. But anyway, how many are you having? That would be something. So that's really what the first piece of the ketogenic diet did. It said, we have to cut these carbs down because they drive glucose. And we, if we can we have glucose at a certain level and not, you know, these, and that's what they're trying. Um, and the ketogenic diet came out of fasting, you know. Up until, you know, there's a fasting craze from the 1890s to really up in the ketogenic diet, 1920s. It, Upton Sinclair wrote about it, and there were other, Mark Twain was into it. Um, and so, but the problem with fasting is fasting eventually leads to death if you don't stop. <laughs> you know, so, or they're saying, you know, talk about a popular idea that needs no, you know, uh, support. Just don't eat anything. For how long? Well, it was about three weeks is what they said. You know, do a three-week fast, water fast, and so on. And of course, things got better. But the, the thing that they were trying to treat was diabetes. And mostly it was type 1 diabetics. You know, these that, you know, are basically born with inability or low ability to produce insulin. And so they lived longer. But what a miserable life. You know, they were going to die faster because they didn't have insulin. So now you took that away because you gave no reason for insulin. You, you dropped the glucose. They're not eating anything. They're burning fat. So they are making ketones. And so, but eventually they die. So you gave them kind of a protracted, miserable life. And then in uh, 24, 25, you had insulin that was isolated and used. And that was profound, you know. Um, so in that cauldron, 
of what are the basic variables at, a, at almost a superficial way of looking at diet. It had nothing to do with nutrition other than macros, right? It's And they, they were very clear about you needed X amount of protein. They, fed, they were focusing on kids, so pediatric, pediatric epilepsy. And they knew if too little protein is going to stunt growth in many aspects. So their biggest concern was, well, how much protein do we do? And um, I think they started lower, but that was their... That, so from when William Wilder came out with it until a guy named Pennington, sort of his colleague, but I think the guy who really did the heavy lifting and developing a, a protocol that everybody can do, uh, was really about five years later. And so he read it up in a paper and so on. And uh, so that's what they decided. I think it was, was it 25? I forgot what the ratio was back then, but that's what took so long was the protein amount. So they, they go, all right, so where's the fat part? We, we can count the carbs. Even then, you know, I mean, how would they count carbs? Uh, that was back when Mayo Clinic had his own kitchen. I mean, there was a testing kitchen in Mayo. Um, I don't think it was called a clinic yet, of the brothers. Before we continue with the interview, I just want to thank the sponsor of this video, Element. Now, when I first started Carnival four years ago, I was eating protein and fat, and I thought I was feeling okay, but I really wasn't. I had tiredness, fatigue, I couldn't sleep at night, and I thought, maybe it was the salt. So I added some salt to my meals. I put some in my water, but it wasn't enough. Those side effects were still there until I tried Element. Because you see, Element contains the right amount of sodium, potassium, and magnesium. And I think my body really needed that to feel normal. And especially if you're going from a carbohydrate diet to a zero or a low carb diet, your body is losing electrolytes. So you might need a supplement just to help you feel normal again. And the great thing about Element, it doesn't have any sugars. There is no nasties. And I like to use this raw unflavored option because I don't really tolerate sweeteners. But if you do, there are so many great flavors that Element has to offer. And right now, Element is offering this free sample pack on every order. So you're gonna get eight single servings of Element to try for free on every order. So if you want this, all you have to do is go to drinkelement.com forward slash five minute body. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T dot com forward slash five minute body to get this sample pack. Let's just get back to the episode. Food is real important. I mean, can you imagine there's a disorder? Really going to be linked to everything that they're going to focus on diet. How old fashioned, you know, once the medications came in, they lost that and, and, the story goes on. But anyway, that hit on a truth that was huge from fasting to ketogenic diet was saying, hey, we, we, we can't just go fasting to death. You know, what's the mechanism here? You know, ends up the ketones are very anti-inflammatory. They feed the brain. So now pivot to the way my mind works. It's like, well, how can this truth be relevant for the last 200,000 years? You know, you know, how, how does that make sense? Well, we were hunter-gatherers up until at least 10,000 years ago. And uh, so 200,000 minus up until 10,000, that's 190,000 years we were hunter-gatherers, which means primarily we ate animals. We ate animals. And, uh, and they weren't fatty. You know, if you ever had game, you go, where's the fat? You know, in, in, in the United States, so venison's or in, in buffalo is very lean. So it's actually a pretty lean diet. But, so they had their protein, they had some fats, and there's not a lot of evidence that there was a lot of vegetables they ate. In fact, the, 
10,000 years ago when that sort of agrarian uh, revolution started, it was with the, with the grains and the grains got, you know, they were smart enough people to, you know, make it sort of was more potent of all the different grains that were there, but they didn't have heads of cabbage. They didn't have, you know, uh, gorgeous fruits. They had figs and so on. So just enough. And so you go, all right, I buy that. Then you can get into in the paleo diet echoes that with, um, uh, Lorraine Cordain and his looking at that, he sort of ascertained that sort of truth with that kind of thing. So now you go a little further, if we can check into this new truth that echoes a truth, of, then we're going, hey, I think we're pretty good. I think we're pretty good because when we think we have a new little thing that hasn't really ever existed before, then we're into trouble, you know, um, hence all the medicines and so on and so forth. They've never existed. Why would they work? You know, for a little bit, maybe long-term disastrous. So um, anyway, so the ketogenic diet came forward to that and really opened up the idea and, and back to worked with uh, worked with Dr. Westman and and certainly through uh, the conferences I went to, you realized ketogenic. Uh, it was told to me this way, and I'll leave it anonymous because I don't want to any of the Hebrew uh, gurus to make it seem like I'm uh, making them feel bad. But the dirty little secret about the ketogenic diet, it works for less than 50% of the people. And you go, how is it less than, you know, so the answer to that was before was, well, they're not doing it right. And so I already saw how it works. And, you know, and, and, um, uh, and Dr. Westman actually is kind of the legacy of Atkins diet. And he, you know, he's the first to do the research on that. And so I don't think it was about that. You know, I don't, you know, I say, so there's 50% of the population, they're going to try they're and we're being told they're either lazy or unintelligent and they can't do it. I don't buy that. You know, I don't, they have the same evolution as we do. And so obviously what they're eating needs to be addressed, but if they could drop it down to 20 carbs or under, they would get some success. Why can't they? Now you get into things like addiction. Now you get into things like what has changed in their life, stress levels, and these other things that flourish in a high carb world. So uh, it gets to be still more interesting. You know, and therefore I look at things like cortisol and so on. And where does that part come into their life? Uh, as a little bit of a segue, one of the people that, that came to me, and uh, I I am not trying to have a book of business here. I, I enjoy the research and people coming in the panels I do and glad they can buy them all because it gives me data. Um, she was a, uh, she was the head of a financial firm, a um, stockbroker's firm. So she was the office manager that, you know, made it so they stayed in line and did all the work and it was a highly stressful job. And she was, I don't know, maybe a hundred pounds overweight. Uh, she's in her forties, uh, early fifties, had children, be, um, you know, she already had her children and they were kind of graduated and so on. Um, and so the thing for her, it's just really her diet was, you know, she really counted her carbs and so on and so forth and went to other doctors and I go, well, let's go see what your cortisol is. It's like, she was like, First of all, about to burn out, you know, she had high cortisol and you could tell that, and that's producing sugar. You don't have to eat sugar to make glucose. So it, she was on her own factory. So yeah, when we locked to say, when we went to find out where did her glucose come from, where did her insulin rise from? It wasn't from what she ate. It is because she was making her glucose. So she was, her stress makes glucose because that's the energy to go run and run away from whatever the fear is, right? Oh, the bear is chasing us through the wood kind of thing, woods. Um, so she's her own glucose factory that fits right into that whole thing. So there's two ways to get into high glucose and dropping the carbs 
uh, works for a lot of people, let's say less than 50%. But if you now teach, ascertain, you know, identify and get the people to, to not be in chronic stress, which is a big issue, it's a, a societal issue, um, they're going to get major improvement. And so then you sort of say, all right, these are the things we need to go and let's have real food. Let's not do packaged foods. That's, that's gone. That's a foregone conclusion. If you rip open any package I've done, you know, it's not going to work. We're going to have to go back to junior high school, home ec, and learn how to fry an egg. So are you saying then, if we're talking about increasing lifespan, living longer, so on one hand, the theory is good in terms of do keto, do carnivore, but you're saying that from an adherence point of view, people actually doing the diet, it's very poor. Yes, I am. Okay. It's, a, it's a dirty little secret. So whether you call well, Finney- It's not really that dirty. Warwick, I think many people well, know that. <laughs> Well, that's hence that's why the dirty little secret. And after that, I go, you know, I appreciate, but but they to flip that, they go, but we got, you know, Verta Health. I mean, you go back to their, they were the first to do a large study. So kudos to them. And, you know, why was the fallout? But they said, you know, we went from uh, diabetics, you know, they could help diabetes and that's the whole thing. They can uh, and they do. But the work that's required and also, if somebody's a diabetic for 30 years versus just got diagnosed, that you know the rate of repairing mitochondria, so on and so forth, is going to be a long time. So, um, to flip it, they'd say, "Well, we've gone from I don't know four or five percent to nearly 50 percent." You know, whereas you flip it around, saying, "Well, on the one size fits all, 100 people go into this room and do the same thing, 50 percent are going to come back out and say that sucks. I wasted my time. I got no benefit." Why was that? You know, why, why was that? And then you have to look at what are the obstacles in their life. So cortisol is another one. Um, the quality and addiction is no, you know, so if they've been, to be rather simple, if they've been a donut person in their life, meaning all the refined carbs, you can't just turn that around. You know, they have so elevated certain receptors, you know, depressed other receptors. It's just such a hot button. It's a little bit like cocaine, you know, and uh, dairy feeds into that for various reasons. and um, So it's not as easy as telling people just to do carnival or keto and then, oh, you just fix and you're not going to get any chronic diseases. There's a whole host of other things that we have to think about if you want to cure disease. And I think because you work with patients, that's why you really understand what they're going through. And then that's why you go to the labs. We're going to get there in terms of the labs because I know that you want to talk about labs and numbers and you love all that stuff. Um can you, for people watching, give an idea, if it's not a certain diet that might be the best, is there certain foods that you think that people should even prioritize, eat more of this, eat less of this, if they want to reduce their risk of disease? Well, I would say the center in terms of foods, it's got to be around protein. And I think that the difference between animal protein and plant protein is not that big of a difference. You can get the protein solution there, however you want to come at it. However, you're not going to get the other nutrients that come in with the animals, you know, and organ meats when I'm talking about animals, uh, they come with the plants. And let me tell you, I spent my education was through the plant side of this. It's naturopathics are primarily plant-based. Um, I think plant-based medicine, meaning the, you know, things you get from the flowers and the herbs and the roots and so on and so forth, like Chinese medicine, which is also part of my background, um, is profound, but that's not food, that's medicine, you know? You don't, you don't eat your medicine for nutrition. 
So what do I mean? Um, when you were to make various teas or topical or, or extractions and so on and so forth, those are things meant to treat a disease, and that's how plants have primarily been used. You know, extraordinarily so. In Chinese, I spent four years Chinese herbal medicine, and it's like, it's just amazing how they look at this, but they don't eat a formula for their nutrition. You know, they eat a formula to correct a disorder. How would they say it? So, um, in terms of the foods, it, now we're talking about a macro protein, and I, I favor animal proteins by a lot because I can get more in liver. You know, this is not like lots of liver. It's just a little liver on a regular basis. And egg yolks. And talk about egg yolks. Egg yolk has got to be the first and only processed food. You reached into the nest and you took this egg. It was already made. It's processed because something made it for us, right? Something made for it. We reached in and goes, it's done? Yeah, it's done. All you got to do is just crack it open and take it raw, cook it, however your thing is. But in the egg itself, the yolk is really the, the big winner. I mean, they're both good. Um, and you can go into how are chickens raised and so on and so forth. And it certainly is better if they don't get the, the soy and the corn because of the omega-6. But back then, in the last 200,000 years ago, the first process, I say it kiddingly, the first processed food was reaching in and taking out you know, the egg and going, I got an egg. Look at the nutrition I got on that. Profound. So egg yolks and liver, um, both animals, it's a lot of work to have a vegetarian or vegan aspect to supply all these things. And once you start being in a plant-based, you know, you got to look at the glucose levels, you know, and, and so we're talking about lab, one lab, everybody should know the word glucose and they should follow it. And then after that, they're going to learn about insulin. And then after that, you know, we're talking. And so few words, cheap labs, profound revelation, revelation in terms of its application to you and where you are at that point in your life. And that's really what it comes down to. So yeah, that food around, I believe, me, is mostly what I have. What did I have so far this morning? I had... Um, we have generally four burgers at night. I put one aside because that's going to be my breakfast. Then uh, Judy makes some turkey burgers. Um, my turkey, they're leaner and she's more concerned about the, the fat level, but they're gorgeous. And, and so that's, I'm done primarily until dinner. Um, but on the burgers, we have the basil that we make, you know, the, the basil and the pesto that we make. With, there's oil on that. We have jalapeno stuff, you know, that we've, Put aside how old-fashioned. I mean, it doesn't take up our whole life, but we love it. And it doesn't have all the crap. There's no labeling problem there. And we, when you put them by, you know, put them by, meaning you can them correctly and you put them in your shelf and you open or you put it in the refrigerator. It's gorgeous. I love it. You know, I mean, people ask, what's the biggest thing going on in your life right now? I remember I, was, I got a haircut a little while ago. So what are you going to do today? I go, oh, we're having steak tonight. <laughs> so is it right to say that you're mostly carnivore? They would call that carnivore, you know, and I, I, the reason I back away from that, I mean, I would say yes. I find carnivore is really only a word you can use for cats, cat family. You know, we, it's a contrivance. It, it's a contrivance to superimpose on humans because now it's like this program. And I think we know where we got to start. I don't really mind. But I would say um, I work backwards from the, the amount of meat that I meet, whether it's fish, when I say meat, whether it's fish, poultry, you know, it's all meat, meaning it's not plant. Um, and uh, that's the single most important thing. And so the fat that come in with that is my fat, which is primarily uh, a lot of it's saturated fats. And to connect all this, 
you know, you can't talk about ketones and ketosis without talking about saturated fats. Saturated fats are just, you know, no double bonds, triple bonds. They're just one long slippery line and they get simply bigger by the number. You know, CA is, is eight carbons, C4, which is really what a ketone is. You know, it, so they take uh, caprylic acid, they cut it in half. Where do you get caprylic acid? Caprylic acid comes from those saturated fats, but that has always been there. So in those 200,000 years, so it, when I check it in mentally, does this, you know, does this make sense for the last 200,000 years ago? You know, it's like, yeah, it was saturated fats was a primarily fat we had. What did we get from fish? We got the omegas. And so the difference is the saturated fats are, um, it's the most concentrated in saturated fats as a family. It's the highest amount of fat in our body. So if I was to take your blood and go, look at all these different saturated fats. Um, it's kind of an energy source. They do a lot of other... Nothing is just one thing, but the omegas, which means that they have a number of double uh, double bonds for this time, so they're kind of kinked up. They are structure. They're structure for cells, so they they provide different purposes. Uh, olive oil is like a what they call a monounsaturated. I mean, it's got one kink in it, and the fish oils, depending on you know how we uh, the omega threes, they have uh, three and sometimes the five, you know, and so. They are to wrap around things. They are nerves. They are, you know, so makes kind of perfect sense. Um, and so now we have two more things we can measure. I don't, I don't measure saturated fats. It's a unnecessary uh, labs. And I try to be somewhat frugal, but omega-6 to omega-3. And omega when you're talking about omega-6, which is, you got to go back to the 50s. You got to go back to the early 60s, Hansel Keys and so on and so forth. He said, hey, it's all about cholesterol and heart disease. And so his, uh, the truthful part of him then was that he lived at the time of Eisenhower who had four heart attacks in office. So suddenly it became a crisis in the United States. Oh my gosh, why are we having all these heart attacks? You know, they didn't look at that he smoked cigarettes and everything else, but you know, oh my gosh. And it was set off on the cholesterol thing. And so um, whether it was a lie or misinformation, you know, in the seven seven study, you know, he did this called a seven country study. And he basically pulled out seven studies, uh, seven countries out of 24 to kind of represent his whole Mediterranean thing. Um, and so there was a guy named uh, Dr. Ramston who went back to look at the, st the studies back then. And he had to go back to the, these one was in Australia, in Sydney. So it's a Sydney diet heart study, concurrent with overlapped a couple of years. Um, with, I forgot what the other one was in, in uh, Wisconsin. And he had to find the sons, the sons of the main researcher. He said, oh, the data is still in the garage. You know, it's, it's like tucked in boxes. So he got it all and had to conjole these people. He goes through it and he said, these conclusions that of the 50s and 60s were bogus. If anything, was, and the idea was if you have omega-6, this is an omega-6, if you have vegetable oil, that's going to push the cholesterol down away. We will drop our cholesterol. He was right. So Ansel Keys was right. It dropped the cholesterol, but it increased death rates. So in his idea that, hey, vegetable oil will do that, it did do that. And uh, omega-6 is a natural, you know, I mean, it comes from plants, uh, corn and soy, in this country anyway. And um, the Sydney Diet Heart Study did it with safflower oil, which is even a higher percentage of omega-6. And so, and they came up with, they came up with the same sort of like, when you really looked at the data, it's like, this isn't good. 
So it's not that it's unnatural. It's just that it's becoming so overwhelming. It's a ratio that's pushed out the omega-3s. Where would you get the omega-3s? We, we, we tend to say it's fish oil. Well, you can get some omega-3s through all the meat you eat as well. You know, um, the best sources are fish. But if we were to pretend back in the day that we didn't even think about grass-fed or not grass-fed, now it's become such an elitist thing. Oh, it's grass-fed. Oh, good for you. You know, um, it's that they were all grass-fed, which means they ate the grass, they didn't eat the grains. I mean, let's be real. They ate the grass, they didn't eat the grains. The omega-6s in the grains. You know, so if you had a field of grains that were still at the grass level and they grazed it, it'd be fine. If they came back and they ate all the grains, it, now it's sowing corn, but it could have been wheat and sorghum and all this other stuff. So it's the, it's the timing difference. It's the grass eating, no grains, versus the grains. And so now it's corn and soy, which are very amped up in omega-6. And so they, we've changed their diet and it shows up and we get it. Uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a problem because we can't just say grass-fed is good for everybody because where are they going to get it? You know, it's, there are places and it is expensive and it's, you know, we're buying our first pig. Um, it's not going to be a, you know, and if buying a, a butchered pig and putting it in a freezer to take care of our, our own food sources, but it's not a perfect, you know, it wasn't grass fed, um, or here at Eastern Carolina, but it's a step. And now we'll work on others. You know, can we get a better pig or a better cow, you know, um, the way they used to do it. So it is a problem to look at the omega-6 and omega-3 ratio. Uh, it's no longer that we're just eating processed foods, but we can now say that the, I guess you could say that the beef and the lamb and everything else is more processed. If you, if you know that it's, I think lamb and sheep don't, I think they graze on grass. They don't do on grain. So I think they're the least culpable, but you can find that out. Um, and, and that, that ratio has changed so dramatically that it's problematic. It's not just as pro-inflammatory. It's just that all those places that the omega-3s are supposed to be, and now you have a slightly different ratio, it makes for problems, whether it's the red blood cell or the nerve cell, and we're going to see it throughout. Um, so we have to kind of reverse that slowly. So if we're thinking about diet and we're thinking about all the things that you just said, which is omega-3s, omega-6s, we need cholesterol, we need to eat more of the meats, eat more fish, eat the yolks, eat some liver, although... Some people don't love liver. How do we do this in real life? Like have the best quality meats, the best quality fish, which is not farmed raised and all. Like even I have that question, you know, being animal based or do you want to call it carnival? For the last four years, how, how are you meant to do it as a normal person? I, well, I, I'm a normal person. I do it. And um, we don't do grass. You are a normal person. Like sorry. Yeah. No, yeah. No, no, I agree. No, it wasn't that it was. Um, you know, I would like to have grass-fed, but it's not available. So I'd say that um, sometimes the word perfect gets in the way. And that's because you said it. It's like a lot of people do that. It's like start where they are and what part can they improve. And I, I think, so my prejudice is not so much on the protein level, but on the overall nutrient level, you get a bigger bang for your buck with a little bit of liver and egg yolks. And people go, oh, I don't like liver. Well, you got to look at that. You know, you just said, I'd rather do poor health versus liking liver. How about we go back to junior high school and do it, not that we cook liver in junior high school, but we had home ec and we knew how to make it. So we make, we make, also let, let me reframe the liver thing. It's like, a lot of people love pate. It's, it's oh, let's have some pate. You know, we'll put it on our crackers and so on and so forth. We got crackers, but pate is liver. And, you know, you learn how to make pate 
if that's what you want, and that's what we do. We do a big bowl of it, and it hangs around for a week or two. Then we don't do it for a while. Um, so you you make it because it has to be part of your life. You know, so by saying we don't want to do that, well, you can always do liver pills. You know, there's you can go online, get supplements, liver pills, and they're there. So that's another way. But it's got to be there. So I say liver more than all organ meats because people don't do spleen and thymus and kidney. It's just, it's a non-starter. They certainly don't do brain anymore for a lot of reasons. So we're kind of stuck with what you can do and it is in your grocery store is liver. And uh, it's the, it's not just the B vitamins. It's a lot of stuff. And um, so it just has to be part of it. You know, all, so we're now part of this legacy of the 200,000 years and saying, oh, I don't like that stuff they did before. You know, I, it didn't work for me. It's like, all right then you're going to have a problem. You know, so some things are, we got to make it work. You know, what did your parents say? I don't know, when you had you made your bed. I don't really care. You're going to do it. You're going to make it work. You know, and, or whatever the thing is they had to do. Clean the dishes, put the silverware away. Because even I have a hesitant, hesitance towards <laughs> liver. And I can understand people out there. It's just like, really? Yes, you have to do it. If you want good health, we're going to start having some liver or liver capsules or anything that we can do. Because... I understand where you're coming from. It's the nutrients that we need because whether it be you want to live longer, increase your lifespan, reduce your risk of early death, really what you're looking for is nutrient density and whatever you get, which is rich in nutrients, whether it be endogenous or exogenous, in or out, that's what the human wants. Um, let's move on from diet because we know about kind of diet and you know, ketogenic diet, carnival diet, as much as people can stick to it, it's good. And you prioritize nutrient-dense foods, the egg yolks, the liver, meat, animal-based. I want to move into, apart from diet, what is the second most important factor that people need to consider to increase their lifespan? Well, um, I'd say it's, you look at deficiencies. So this is a measurable thing. That's what I look at. You have to look at deficiencies. And now we've moved away from the macros, right? You know, ketogenic, the protein, and so on and so forth. Now you look at, you know, do we have deficiencies? Because deficiencies are road stops. The road's broken. We're not, we can't go there anymore. So why don't we repair it so we can go there? Is it a neurolo neurological thing? Is it a gut thing? So it makes sense to at least look at that. Nothing's perfect. We don't have a perfect, but I, I use SpectraCell. I'm sure there's labs around the world that do that. Um, I, I match that with labs. And so I at least have that. And I also see their diet. So, I mean, I can, so I've, at least this is my, how do I bring in somebody? If am I going to make a transformation here? You know, what are they eating? Um, and I need to have them now do chronometer and they'll go on and do that for about four weeks. And I don't tell them anything about anything. I just sort of see... Be true and be honest. I need to look at that. We'll change it later. So I get to have a correlation, right? Not just the labs, but I get to look at it. And, and chronometer has gotten progressively more sophisticated over the last 10 years for sure. And it will show you, you know, deficiencies or not. And so you get a clue there. So you can address that. That's a big deal. Um, the other thing, which is esoteric, is that we don't all have the same needs. Um, it, that's just the way it is. Kind of, And that came out of as we mentioned before, we were talking of primarily having to deal with malaria over the last 200,000 years, certain genetic genomic strategies. So for me, I, I have uh, compromises both in choline metabolism and in methylation, not just MTHFR, but in the constellation things. So I go, needs to be, what does that mean? That what it means is I basically need more of the B vitamins. So 
Um, if I was, to, if there was a hundred people in the room and I'm the only one that had this particular greater need, when we're not getting our B vitamins, I'm going to be the first person to get sick. I'm going to be the first person to show up with things that are, uh, we'll call it B vitamin deficiencies, which are anything from carbohydrate metabolism to cerebral you know, balance. So I will be the first one. And it's not because we're eating differently. It's because we had a slightly different need and it's strong enough to be a real factor to needs to be addressed. So you, you say, all right, we're going to, we have the food. We've said, hey, these are the foods you need to eat for this, like most people, but you need a little more of it. And then you would probably supplement the difference for a while to gradually get them up that hopefully only diet would happen. But they'll probably, like I take supplements. I don't take a lot because I don't like supplements. Uh, for the most part, they have a need. So they're there. So it is about deficiency. So you know, it's about nutrition, nu nutrient density. Yep, yep, all those good things. But we got to measure it at some point because it's the assumptions we make end up being, you know, happens in my family too. I mean, my siblings and so on. Yeah, yeah, I got a good diet. It means they don't want to go there. So it usually there's something there. There's something they don't want to disclose. And it's like, then it's something's not going to work out. But if you can look at that or, or sense it, you know, it, it goes as far as using crowner there again, it's everything. Yeah. It takes work. There's, there's kind of another word we're working around. It's engaging in oneself and you'll say, all right, according to chronometer, I'm not saying it's gospel. I'm just saying it's clever. Um, it will say, I'm not getting enough, but maybe you ought to pay attention to that. I know you don't know about genomes, but go on that. At least that's an improvement. Um, so putting the two together are a big deal. Uh, in as much as 20 years ago, I was lecturing at um, a couple of years in a row at UMass College of Pharmacy. They're all post-grad pharmacy students, so they're pharmacists. And um, methylation and the need for uh, folic acid and B12 and all these little things were just coming about. And nobody knew a lot other than there were certain correlations with B12 deficiency and certain genomes were higher in schizophrenics. You know, so in one of my videos, I talked about the Dutch hunger winter end of World War II. They had, uh, <clears throat> they were basically starved. You know, a huge population of people are starved. So who went crazy first? Who died? You know, and they, because they were so um, disciplined community, everything got documented. People still went to the doctors as they were starving. People still, so they got to see all this documentation of what starvation looks like. But why didn't they all show up with the same symptoms? Why, why was it only in, and then in subsequent generations, now you go to the whole epigenetics thing. Um, so it has to be addressed. We, we, we don't want to do that, right? Just like there's people who don't like liver. Don't like liver then. Find a way to make it work. That's all I can say. You know, you were humans and to turn on your ancestors and saying, I'm a weenie now because I can be a weenie because they said I can do whatever I want to do. It's like, there's a lot of risk there that's not being advertised. Okay, I have to ask. So I know that you're, I'm, I mean, you're being very realistic because I know that people want to change their health. They want to not have these diseases that people, are, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure that each person knows somebody that either has Alzheimer's, they have dementia, heart disease, brain disease. Probably most people know somebody that has that. So they want something to prevent it. When they go see a doctor, is there certain labs that they can order <laughs> or ask for? Yeah, there are. There are. I think that, uh, I, and so that's, in, in some of the videos I do, I try to say, hey, this is just about labs. Spend your $10, ask for this lab. Or um, I'm sure Australia has the same 
in Europe, though I don't know the references there, said, here's what you can get for free. You know, go do it yourself. You're going to have to have somebody go draw your blood. So you go to one of these bazillion places, probably in your neighborhood, uh, and get your blood draw done. And so, um, yeah, I would absolutely. So for under 50 bucks, you can get a lot of good information. Glucose, insulin, done. Uh, triglycerides, HDL, done. We're not even up to $20 yet, I don't think. Um, after that, oh, the Omega-6-3, what's the cost of that? I think that's probably about 60 bucks. Um, this is not through Quest and Lab, I mean, Quest or LabCorp, the places in the United States. So you get that. That's an extraordinarily useful piece of information. So we're under $100. You go, I got this stuff and it gives me a range. I'm not quite sure how to read it. Well, these ratios are really helpful, you know, um, and, you know, I, I had to start there too. So before my crisis, before saying I got to look deeper, I'm, I'm missing something obvious. This can't be that magical or evil. You know, there's got to be something that I'm doing that I need to know about. Um, what's my thought? It's like, so I went, I went into compare, you know, now that I have enough people, I can compare relative to age and other things, but I was only a tweaker before by saying, well, here's the range. Yeah, you're within range. Don't worry about it. That doesn't always, you can be within range and still have problems when you, that's why you have to look at a context. So the easiest context were insulin glucose, context of two, right? Um, and then you have triglycerides and HDL, context of two. And you can even put these t together and they will tell you about insulin resistance. They will tell you about chances of heart disease. Then you throw in your omega-6-3, which gives you even more information. Um, you have a lot of stuff covered. No, we didn't go into liver panel or keep, you know, we didn't do electrolytes and uh, any of this other stuff, but you got it for under a hundred bucks. You had to, and I, you know, boom, easy to do uh, on that, you know. Uh, and then, so even way back when I started meeting patients in the nineties, um, I say, you got to get a notebook, print it out, put it in your notebook. Here are June 6th, whatever year, you know, so you can look through and you are reading the book of your life, so to say, but you're getting more familiar with these labs. So I know we all got to roll our eyes when we see a lab, we roll our, all, our eyes when we see a little chemistry, but hold on for a little better because this is our only way out of there, out of, out of this. In the United States, it was a two weeks ago, uh, it was a third of all uh, now a younger generation. I think people uh, under 25 that applied for the military were denied because they're overweight. Excuse me? You know, I would say if, if not more than a quarter, less than a third, but that was pretty much national news or if you get your YouTube news um, or email news, however you get notified that that's profound, but it's also sort of obvious, you know, uh, the obesity thing, how does that happen? It came in through the mouth. It didn't come in through any place else. So what you thought was eating safe, but it wasn't what your grandparents ate. You didn't ask. You thought these are smart people making this, making this up. It's echo of the cigarette industry, you know, um, why do we think that was safe? And they, they don't, and we didn't smoke forever. You, how far back can you go smoking? Maybe a hundred years. So I'm curious about this. It's mostly about what you eat, but then you also talk about in your YouTube videos, the importance of muscle mass and how muscle mass is directly related to mortality. So uh, your risk of all cause death for death of any cause is directly associated with how much muscle you have. First question is, because people are just like, I'll do the exercise, but I don't want to worry about the diet. So what's more important, what you eat or the muscle mass? 
given that, if it's a finite choice, I would say it's the muscle mass. And yeah, now, right. I mean, obviously you need both, right? You stop eating, you die. You stop working out. Um, you, you minimally can get around, but you will age a lot faster. Um, so that brings us to yet another lab, which is a whole new series of things that I'm coming out with. It's on a thing called IGF, which is, now we're back, it's called Insulin Growth Factor Dash 1, and there's a numbers, but that's what we're looking at, so we call it IGF. And um, what I love about this, so how I was schooled back when I was in med school, it's like, oh, IGF, you know, when it's high, it's like pro-cancer, you know, it's like, you know, and it's, oh, IGF, you got to watch for this, you know, your cancer patients, watch their IGF. And so it was sort of terrifying. This is like, and hardly anybody really took IGF. It's an expensive test. I think it's like 150 bucks. Um, I put it in my panel and have really gone deep into this, whether it's dairy and exercise. But anyways, exercise, which there are different types. You know, there's walking around the block and there's, just, and there's different muscle uh, fiber types and they actually have a purpose and they're real. But from walking around the block to doing cardio or aerobics to doing weight resistance. So we're talking about muscle mass. Anything is better than nothing. So when someone goes, I'm not doing it, what, what, what's the best? I go, how about you just get started and call me in a week? <laughs> you know, you know. And if you're not starting because you didn't know what the best was, but it, you do need to include uh, and or focus on weight resistance training. And so I, I do slow weight resistance training, which is a high intensity type. You can do different types of high intensity, but that's what I do. Um, and off days at home, we do videos for you know aerobics. But... That stress has to be, you have to induce it to be uncomfortable. And so that's kind of the word that's at the heart of health, if you ask me, is how willing are you to be uncomfortable? How willing are you to be uncomfortable enough to have liver, egg yolk, et cetera, et cetera, whatever the thing is for that person? How willing to you, so we did our HIT coming back, and it's our first full uh, workout since the car accident. It's like, it hurts. I mean, I mean, certain like certain ones hurt more than others and it's slow you know you are in you're holding the pain so it's called time under tension you don't go one you know and you have the momentary rest and two three but it's not reps it's slow that's what i do. <laughs> to be honest that's what i do I'm like, oh, i have to do weight training so i'll get like two or three or four pound weights oh yeah i'm doing weight training but it's not that kind of weight training <laughs> it's better than nothing so i i would like i always make Make sure something is better than nothing. Keep going with what one's doing and put their toe into HIT or slow resistance training, you know, and you do get the form down and you start low and then you gradually, and you'll, you'll find you'll plateau um, probably after about six months and very slowly increase or not at all for the longest, which is fine. It's about the stress. And so you're forcing your muscles to adapt to a higher stress and then, then they need a couple of days to recuperate. So muscle mass is really important. So back to the lab, it's like, so now I see these labs, I love looking at IGF because, you know, I now have the whole age thing and obviously, you know, from pregnancy to all the way up to adolescence, your IGF levels, you know, it's your growth hormone that comes down to your liver and it triggers IGF. So it's mostly an IGF, but it is triggered by growth hormone, which is from your brain, uh, pineal gland. And uh, so I look at that and so unless there is a problem with that person, which they're almost never, for me, they're not going to be seeing me if they have that kind of problem. But I tell, I can see who doesn't show up at the gym at all or who doesn't even walk around on the block. 
And so you're talking to an obese person and you go, all right, your insulin's high, your glucose high. We did another fancy test to, to prove it to you. We put on a CGM and you saw that. And here's your, and here's your IGF. It's actually very low for your age because it declines as we get older, but we have the power of keeping it up there. It's kind of like the vitality lab. It's the rejuvenation lab. And so as much as you go, well, too much is bad for cancer. That is such a distortion of the reality, and it, but it has its kernel of truth, you know. But if you do it by a natural source of exercise, you're not taking anything. You're doing something for yourself. And that will give you a 48-hour rise, a fall of, of it, well, it's growth hormone, but you don't get a, a nice IGF bounce out of that. And then it goes back and then you do it again. So exercise is part of our lifestyle forever. Um, and so you can read that. You, know, you go to the gym much, you exercise much. Do you swim much? Do you do anything? Do you play tennis or paddleball? You know, I can tell you're not a doer, are you? Um, and that's vital because it, 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 it's, it's the thing that allows all the cells to turn over for maintenance. We're not growing anymore. We're not getting a bigger nose or fingers or anything else, but we're replacing those cells and we want them to be in good quality. So the doing of the muscle mass, you know, when you look at somebody and they have, they don't have to be so hypertrophied that they you know, or the former Schwarzenegger or somebody else, you can tell when you pat them on the back, when you shake their hand, the muscle mass of the whole body. And, and you know that. You can look at the head and the neck just by looking at it, how, what they look like, and you know that. And there's a degree of health, and we don't know their diet. So I do see people that are a lot stronger than me, that are both younger and older than me, and their diet sucks because they have this belly, but their muscle mass is probably really pretty good. And so they didn't know the other part, you know, and who knows if they're ever, you know, they'll probably drink their beer or they'll have their whatever, or they're in, the, in there with their energy drinks because somehow they need that, you know, so they think. So, but they got the exercise part. So you really need to look at both, but not doing exercise and think you can get away with it. It's going to catch up with you. It's going to catch up with you. Damn. Okay. Because I do my walking. So do you think that cardio is a waste of time? If you want to... Live longer, reduce the risk of early death. Well, uh, let me answer it differently. If you're saying, can I do cardio instead of weightlifting, we'll call it resistance training, I would say no, if you're, if your goal, right? So then, then I would default to something's better than nothing, do what you think is, is appropriate. But no, H, H, well, I call it HIT, um, the resistance training, slow resistance training is vital. You know, you need, it's the only way you're going to get your muscle mass, but something is better than nothing. So if people are not going to, they're going to quit their cardio and never actually do something else, that's not a good step forward. I like to say that something is better than nothing, but I don't like to default on that because if I just go for a 30 minute walk every day and I do the same thing over and over, or it could just be anything like eating the same foods or just eating, you know, not trying to eat more liver, like for example. And if I have that mindset, something is better than nothing. I'll just keep doing the same thing. So I try to just, you know, even if it's pushing yourself a little bit, but you have to incrementally get better and better over time. Something better than nothing is good advice if somebody's just starting, but you always have to push yourself. And that's even in life. Overall, whether it be um, mentally, physically, emotionally, you always have to push yourself to try to get better. I know when I first started doing the interviews, like me talking to you right now, it'd be a mess. <laughs> Let me just tell you. But when you push yourself to do physical exertion, emotional, mental exertion, 
you do get better. What I would say, I would tie this into, we, we do live in a funny world right now, apart from the health thing, and it's very easy to get depressed and uh, whatever kind of news you want to read. Um, so what is working out giving? It, it really, in diet, it gives you a sense of optimism that is going to be undiminishable. And we need that. And optimism is another is a fancier word for hope. You know, you need to have a kernel of hope in anything what you do. A kernel of hope in whatever the project is you're working on, even if it's cleaning your house. So it's hope and it's optimism. You got to defend that. And that's really the center of the ball of wax we're talking about. So when you work out and you're tired and you come back, you're going to find your norm has, you know, you're not electrified, but you're optimistic. You're optimistic. And life tends to, with optimism, is kind of fun. With optimism, is kind of curiosity. What else can I do? Why don't I ask these questions? Suddenly, it becomes rich. You know, it's not just green and the forest. It's like, well, that's pretty cool. That tree does that. That's a needle. That's a leaf. That's it. You know, it's like suddenly it becomes the next level of questions and things that you notice. And so, that's the connection and that's the value. So when we we tend to tie things into uh, mortality or lack of, you know, extend lifespan. Um, I would say the heart of everything that we're talking about is, I know they say the moment you live now and so on and so forth, is feeling good about this. You you do want to get better at the podcasting. You do want to have not a lot of liver. You do want to, you, I want some of that. Don't you want to go, yeah, I got another day today. You know, I woke up and I realized I got another day. That's it. I love that. It's a, it's a simple things and like pushing yourself just a little bit to get a bit better, not totally uncomfortable, but when you push yourself that little, 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 and that it's the thing from Atomic Habits, small things make a difference over time. I love all that kind of stuff. The last thing I wanted to touch upon, and this is for longevity, interestingly, interestingly enough, because I always thought that uric acid was associated with gout. So how is uric acid or elevated levels of uric acid associated with early death or increase in cardiovascular disease? That's a big question. And nothing is certain there in terms of that. But what we find, um, so the way I do it is I, I like to look at correlations, you know? So you can say, well, as uric acid goes up, so uric acid is, how do we get there? Um, you actually can get elevated uric acid from a ketogenic diet initially. And that's, that's, that's actually the topic I'm working on now in this video uh, has to do with anion gap. It's like you're shifting over in this particular case, since I just said that you're shifting over from a carb metabolism called the standard American diet, but a carb metabolism to a fat burning metabolism. That's pretty straightforward. And it's not just flipping a switch and you're asking your whole body, your whole metabolism to make this transformation. It will take at least a month, more than likely six months, more than likely two years but you'll get better. So in the shift of your body going, what the heck? Where, where are the donuts coming from? Or the Rice Krispies or whatever the carbs were, we're not getting that. Well, your gut is like, a, it's like an assembly line. Your gut has been lined up perfectly to digest the food that you bring in. You know, it's like the cars that are coming in, they're going to be fine-tuned and then they're going to be sent out into the world. Well, now you've decided we're not going to be making that car anymore. We're not going to be eating that kind of food. So all that assembly line is irrelevant to the new food. You know, so actually it has a lot to do with gut sort of adapting to fat metabolism. It's not just mitochondria and all these fancy words like bi biogenesis and so on and so forth. Um, 
it's a long transition. And in that transition, your uric acid will go up. And in one, you could say, oh, it's about purines. It's not necessarily about purines. It's about really the mitochondria going, not being able to handle things. And um, in that transition, and for some people, they get clobbered. You know, if they have gout, they're going to get it. You know, they're, so they should stay on their medications and just wade through it. And then on the other side, it's not a forever thing. On the other side, the uric acid will go down. So the dilemma is, they say, you know, you, you, you see these, you know, and I don't have enough studies to sort of say I have 100 people and there are hundreds and, you know, um, elevated uric acid. And so I, I look at it like, well, if they had uric acid, low uric acid, it came from purines and it came from a poor metabolism. It came from the alcohol and a lot of other things. It came from uh, all the foods or something that that makes you know, you can get it from sickness. That's where I got it. I actually had a bout of pseudo gout, but it was pretty darn close and it's very uncomfortable. So it made me look into all of that. Um, is that you now have to rethink, how do I make my uric acid solvable so it doesn't show up, you know? So if it's like, if you think of water going through a, a dam and I'm going to now close the dam, the water's going to rise on the other side of the dam. Makes sense, right? Uric acid is like that. Sometimes it's not about how much uric acid to break down products of purines and so on, which is RNA, DNA, nucleate, nucleate, you know, that's where they come from, or comes from any kind of meat we eat. Some are more, but anything living has purines in it. They're the more uh, concentrated nutrient dense, as you will, fish like sardines, Versus tuna, they both have purines, more concentrated in sardines and mackerel, just the way it is. You look at that little fish, it's very concentrated. So that's not a mystery. But sometimes it's not so much the breakdown of our diet of our eating. Um, it's that we've made it through lifestyle less soluble. So now that water behind the dam is going to rise up. And so now we have a, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Um, well, you look at lifestyle factors. And so I find for me, and this isn't where I read about, it's like, I did a lot of reading of uh, uric acid papers, and it's fascinating because it also goes back to history. Uh, history it goes back to evolution. You know, why did we lose the ability to uh, make our own vitamin C uh, when we became to the great apes, and then from there to humans? Why did we partially get the ability to digest fructose? Fructose is part of it. It's not the only culprit. So we tend to go, oh, it's a fructose story. Well, it's um, hard not to be technical there because. Our diet today is high fructose. Um, fructose isn't really everything. We've never had fructose by itself. It's always been coupled with another sugar. Um, and so it's when it breaks down, we get the fructose. But now if you go to your Starbucks or whatnot, you actually can do fructose there as a, as a little separate packet. And that's pretty intense. And you have fructose. And, and it's these, uh, the fancy word is polyols. And... You know, so you have your, yeah, sugar alcohols, but not all sugar alcohols. Certainly, in fact, the, so they call it the polyol pathway or another name for it is called the sorbitol pathway. And you go, wait a minute, isn't sorbitol, uh, you know, what about the mannose? What about all these others? Well, they are all very varying degrees of a problem. But if, when you have a pathway named after sorbitol and fructose, and glucose also. So when you load up one side of it, you're having a lot of donuts. That would be the glucose. Glucose still gets broken down. Um, or you're having a lot of, I won't say just fruits. Or, or fruits are not, they're culpable because they're high fructose, but they're not just fructose in there. You know, and, um, but if they just had all fruits, they would have a lot of that. That's going to 
load the pathway, and even too much glucose gets converted by our body into fructose. So the, the ultimate culprit is fructose, but it didn't start off that way. So it's, it's kind of a um, vague story of, yeah, at this point, going into the whole polyol and into the uric acid as, as a contributor to elevated uric acid is a problem. So on the dietary side of things, it's back to all oh, the sweetener things. And some people go, oh, don't have fructose because it has, don't have uh, fruit because it has fructose in it. It's like, if you do real fruits, we happen to move to a place that actually had a peach tree and it, uh, it bloomed and it had 200 pounds of peaches. And so we cut them all up and froze them and it's like, they were delicious and we haven't eaten all of them. But obviously it's not part of carnivore. Honestly, it's, you know, and it certainly wasn't kind of the peach they had 200,000 years ago, if they even existed, you know, any more than a berry. But they were delicious, didn't have a problem with me. I thought I possibly could have. Um, and so what I come down to are, in terms of solubility issue, are really three things that are not talked much about. Uh, make sure your vitamin D levels are up there. They clearly is correlation. Um, vitamin C is also a big deal. It helps the, the solubility of your uric acid. So it goes out with your urine, so it doesn't pile up in your serum. Um, I like... Uh, what they call uh, liposomal vitamin C, which means it doesn't have to be digested. It actually gets absorbed. Very cool. Very cool. And then in terms of magnesium uh, and minerals in general, but magnesium, I do a, a calcium magnesium. To have, and there's a lot of forms. You know, you can have oxalate, you can have glycinate, you can have malate, and so on and so forth. Um, I like the form citrate from citric acid because it fits right into the citric acid cycle, who cares? But the fact that it helps with the solubility of your uric acid. So for me, I think I've never had a bout again because of the vitamin C, the citrate that I take, um, and periodic fruits, you know, in terms of, you know, well, how, how would that be helpful? You know, I think that, um, uh, we have the ability to digest fructose a little bit. And so there's my fructose part. I'm not starving myself from fructose. Hardly, I haven't had a peach for a while. Um, and it, and it just, I just realized they were like this smashingly great. Um, that's where I am on that. Others, you know, if they have a lot of alcohol, you know, the same thing. It's going to flood that pathway. If they have a lot of meats, purines, you know, so there's many ways to fill the funnel on that side. If one is so... And actually, high-intensity exercise. So what I've just told you to do is contributory. You know, I had to look at all the factors. Why is it contributory? Because for me to get bigger muscle masses, to hypertrophy, I have to break down my muscles. I've just broken down a lot of purines. And so now that's going to spill out into my blood system, right? And it has to be filtered out. So high-intensity training, um, generally, but weight-resistance high-intensity training, think of all the bodybuilders. You know, when they do a hard workout, you go measure it, and they actually will show up in another thing called rhabdomyolysis, which is a bit extreme, but anybody can get there relative to their ability to handle that. So you have that, you have how much meat to eat, you go, well, wait a minute, so it's anti-carnivore? You could go in that direction. I, I had to question these too. It's like, well, I'm here. Which which part of the pain do I not want? Um, I, I am carnivore, and I think I at least eat probably around two grams of protein, the animal whole food sources of protein, per day on any given day per ideal body weight, which is your height and weight, you know, no mystery there. You can look that up in Google, ideal body weight, and they're all ballpark about the same. So I think I've managed to get around it with the things that I've mentioned. Of course, I have my, my 
fish oils, that's helpful as well. There's another, some good research on that. But so I make sure, so I have my vitamin C a little bit. Um, I have my uh, citrate or even citric acid. If you want to do, you know, that, that's the other thing you get with fruits, by the way, is citric acid. Um, and the vitamin D, these basic things have really allowed me to have a good lifestyle with these other things. So it actually would have been a anti-carnivore diet recommendation if one has gout, you know, and there's ways to get around it that do make me think that it existed in uh, evolution. You know, where does citric acid exist in evolution? Well, it came through the fruits. The idea was that we were all great apes or pre-grade apes. We ate the rotting fruits in the ground and fructose was toxic, so we didn't do that. But we also made our, excuse me, our own vitamin C at the time. We got over the toxicity of fructose a little bit, can't have a lot of it, a little bit. At the same time, we stopped making our vitamin C. What a coincidence. It sort of points to fruit. And they're probably all berries at the time, you know. It's not the extremes that it's not the extremes of the amount of sugar or even the sweetness of the fruit. So even when I was watching your videos about gout or uric acid, and it made sense because you don't have to be a hundred percent carnivore a hundred percent of the time. It's just these things, the same thing that you were saying earlier before the interview that you're here we're hearing certain things about this diet or this trend, and basically what they're trying to do is sell something or programs or whatever. But even, you know, to say that you have to be 100% this or that, no fruit, no, like it doesn't make sense because if you were to have fruit in the wild, then you would have the fruit. Nowhere, it would be nowhere near as sweet as what would have these days or in the frequency. So I get that. But then I was, uh, I was thinking, wow, like the protocol to lower your uric acid is so opposite from everything else, <laughs> which is... And then it was a bit confusing because on one hand, it's like, well, if you have high uric acid, you could get gout, um, heart disease, die. And then the other part of it is, well, exercise and eat more meat, omega-3s and high, have high cholesterol and you're going to live longer. So I was like, oh, what's the answer? Yeah, I agree. I agree. And and so, so once you start there, um, at least for me, I start saying, all right, what are some of the correlations I find in labs for, you know, and so one of the things, it's an easy is um, hemoglobin. Where do you get hemoglobin? Red meats, right? Animals. And you go, wait a minute, that's another strike against carnivore. But it's only when you have excessive amounts. So, I mean, there's that's the thing about people. They go, oh, this thing solves, let's say they just heard liposomal vitamin C. They're going to have a shovel full per day of liposomal vitamin C because they don't like their uric acid. That's way over the top. You know, it's basically going to work really well for people who are probably very deficient in vitamin C or borderline deficient. And so, when it came down to hemoglobin, I go, and this is whether we're measuring red blood cells, whether we're measuring, um, what else we got here? I'm sort of looking at my scatter plots, um, you know, uh, hemoglobin directly. And so it goes flat and it pops up. And so it says that enough is good, too much is bad. Now, where do we hear that? That's about everything. It's a truism of life. You know, enough is good, you know. And so there, there you go. That's, uh, you know, I find that, I, I was expecting, you know, some other correlations. Uh, one thing was really neat is that glutathione and uric acid are kind of uh, opposite in the sense that as your uric acid goes up, your glutathione goes down. That not always, there's kind of exceptions. This is just sort of my average of the people that I work with. But that sort of says that one's a driver of the other or at one is using something up, you know, of the other. So it's it's not like, oh, cause and effect. Um, and what else are there? Yeah. 
And then I, I was expecting inflammation in uric acid to be like one and one, and it's not. Uh, it's not always the case. Uh, so when you look at relative to diets, it's like, oh, it's some common sense thing. So, you know, if one ate a lot of liver, then a lot of people are against liver, not because they don't uh, like the taste of it. It's because, oh, look at all the liver problems. But, you know, you're going to have people who have really loved liver had problems. Well, they ate too much. You know what I mean? There's something, that's the thing about it. They go, how about not too much and a little bit? You know, how about not too much and a little bit? And that's kind of being reasonable. It's a degree of common sense, but it it's not marketed. It, that's not a good marketing jingoistic thing to say. I love that you said that. Well, I think that we've spoken about a lot um, to help people, you know, reverse as much as possible their disease and live longer as much as you can. Two things I want to add to that. I would say my biggest selling point for themselves is like, wouldn't you like to be more optimistic today? I mean, how do you counter all that? It almost seems like it's coming over the mountaintops. You know, it's like this cloud coming in, push it back. You know, you're going to be one of the vital people in our culture and in your own life. It's like, grab it. This is doable uh, because it's, I, I think it's so necessary if for no other reason than that. Absolutely. Well, I just want to say a big thank you. How can people find more of you apart from your wonderful YouTube, which I'm going to put in the show notes? That's great. Um, I would say that so on the back of our YouTube on the, in the details, um, if they really need to send me an email or so on. And, you know, the, the people I work with, so a lot of people go, oh, I want to I want to work with you. That's fine. Generally, it's pretty expensive only because I now at the point I go, I want to do these labs. This is what I'm interested in. And this is what helps people. I'm no longer the tweaker. Um, I would say work with a regular doctor. I'm not trying to dismiss it. My wife's not here. She would probably kill me for saying this. She's like, no, tell people to come to you. It's like, not everybody wants to do all these labs. And I get that. So um, if, if, if the grain of learning can be dropped into your mouth and you start to move on something, let that be the beginning, learning little labs. You don't need to work with me to get all this other stuff. I like it. It really has revealed a lot. I came from a dire situation that I needed to know more about. So there you go. Hope that helps. Well, thank you so much. And I'm sure we're <laughs> going to see you very soon. <laughs> it was an earful. Okay. Take care, kid. It was good talking to you. Thank you. Maria. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Dr. Goldcamp all about how to live longer and reverse disease. Now you need to watch this video next with Dr. Ovedia. He's gonna talk about how you can reduce the risk of heart disease and what foods you need to prioritize to reduce the risk of a heart attack. I'll see you guys next week.